This podcast is brought to you by a-eon.biz, stickerrobot.com, theminotaurproject.co.uk and pvpubs.com. Hello, my name's Adam Spring and this is a Remotely Interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Jerry Manock, who is widely considered to be the father of the industrial design group at Apple. That's right, Johnny Ives territory. Now, this one's interesting for a number of reasons because one, I'm talking about Apple, which I thought I kind of would never do in this podcast. And I also talk a lot about Steve Jobs and a little bit about Woz as well, because Jerry was very much at the coalface of Apple as a company. He was brought in on the Apple II, he worked a lot on the Apple III, and he was also part of the original design team for the original Macintosh computer. In fact, he was hand-picked. Now, we don't just talk about his days at Apple, although we do a lot, obviously. We also talk about his post-Apple life, his work at the University of Vermont, and also what he's doing now as well, but you'll have to go to the Easter egg at the end for that. Now, in addition to this, episode 8 and episode 9 of this podcast, they're kind of interlinked. They were taken at the Vintage Computing Festival Southeast in Atlanta, which was organized by the Atlanta Historical Computing Society. Now, episode nine is going to be with Bill Hurd, and Bill kind of naturally tied into this episode by referring to Jerry as, well, I was speaking to the Apple guy yesterday. Anyway, I'll leave you with Jerry for now. I call, I call myself a product design engineer because at Stanford, uh, the educational uh, product design education was both technical, mechanical engineering, and also aesthetics. Uh, industrial design kind of leads people to think you're a stylist. So I always like to say product design engineer. In terms of, I guess, the big thing for you would be the Mac. How did that come about? Well, it actually started with Apple II. When I was uh, had, had my new consulting business, uh, Manic Comprehensive Design, uh, it started at Jobs was one of the first people that called me uh, probably two or three months after I started my consulting business and uh, wanted somebody to, to do the Apple II. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had been to a lot of other firms in Silicon Valley, and they said it's impossible to do it in three months. He needed it for the West Coast Computer Fair. Uh, he came to me in December, wanted it for the West Coast Computer Fair in March or April, I can't remember now, but just an incredibly tight timeline. And uh, I was hungry enough to take the, to take the, uh, the assignment uh, I found out later a lot of other people turned it down as being impossible, but it was only myself and I could work pretty fast and uh, we found some good short short run suppliers that could give us parts quickly um, so that yeah, it started with the Apple II and then the disk II and then as I joined them full time as corporate manager of product and I design in seventy nine then that morphed into uh, kind of being in charge of the Apple III project, which i uh, had help from another fellow Stanford designer who had started his design company, um, uh, which later turned into IDEO. You've probably heard of IDEO. They're probably one of the best best product design companies now, consulting companies in the world. And they started out as Hovey Kelly Design. So I, I hired Dean Hovey and myself did the Apple III uh, product design. And then, of course, part of my talk today was how the... Apple III successfully uh, moved into the Macintosh. So I was pretty well established by the time I was asked to head up the Macintosh design group. 
And it sounded as though from your presentation at the you know Vintage Computing Festival Southeast, which is where we are today, you know, it sounds as though there was a, an interesting learning curve with the Mac in terms of doing something that hadn't necessarily been done before in terms of its shape on the actual desktop and trying to squeeze a lot into a small space. Right. I was wondering if you could elaborate some more on that. Yeah, the other uh, a vertical orientation of the of the CRT, the display above the keyboard. Uh, most of the computers at the time, the the display was to the side, so getting minimum space on the desk uh, was Steve's idea because it w he wanted it to be used on a on a business desk, and we were told even that the back of the product, which would be facing someone sitting at the desk that was visiting the executive would be looking at the back. So it had to look good from the front, from the user side, but it also had to look good from the back, uh, which came, came, uh, gave some problems about cable routing and about identification and things like that. But the, uh, the other goal of Steve was to have a completely enclosed operating computer where you didn't have to plug in an external display, you didn't have to plug in uh, an external disk drive, uh, and there weren't any slots to plug boards in like the Apple II because Apple's history at that time was any, any product that uh, Apple II that had failed due to maybe a third-party board being plugged in or a different display being plugged in, Apple would always get the service call, not the third-party vendor of the part. So Steve said, well, I'm sick of that. I want everything to be totally self-contained, take it out of the box, plug it in, and do useful work. So that was one of the kind of philosophical decisions of, of, of his as opposed to the Apple II division, which was all about, you know, being able to plug things in and, and coming up with different designs to, to work with the Apple II. I was wondering if you could recount the, uh, the story of how you tested the airflow with Incense as well, because it, to me it sort of encapsulates that period of computing where people would still do, you know, quirky things that were on the ground as opposed to everything, you know, being necessarily very rigid like it would be now. Yeah, a, a real sort of hands-on experience. Uh, we probably could have gotten the money to hire a, a, somebody to do a thermal analysis of it, but uh, it's we wanted to be there ourselves. So the, the key to that was to have a Macintosh made out of clear plastic, and that took about a month and a half to have it machined from our drawings uh, and, and put together by a, to the accuracy of a you know, five thousandths of an inch. Once we got that transparent Mac, uh, we took it into a, a closet where we could turn the lights out, and we, we lit insect incense sticks and held them near the, the, the bottom of the computer on the outside where the air would be flowing in, and the components inside would, of course, heat up, and, and then by convection, uh, the cool air was heated and r rose to the top, and then we could see it coming out of the out of the vents at the top, and whether it was flowing evenly or whether it were turbulence where we could see waves of, of incense smoke inside, we could tell how efficient we were in, in managing that airflow. And of course, to the outside vent, a visitor coming up and opening the door to a dark, small closet and smelling you know, various scents of incense, they had no idea, you know, with five people in the room, they had no idea what was going on. So we got a lot of interesting comments about that. It was, it was fun. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that kind of leads on to, okay, when you're dealing with, um, you know, relatively small to see, I guess, in comparison to like modern day sort of hardware development and software development and stuff, 
How important was that synergy between the designers and the hardware and the software team to have that communication between the two units? Yeah, I, I think it was critical to, to uh, the success of the product and the, the fact that it's, you know, in that form has lasted lasted so long in different different uh, variations. Uh, yeah, we, we all talk to each other regularly and it was an open open environment in the in the division and uh, basically an open door policy and people were encouraged to speak up and and voice their opinions which i i think it's always good to have you know instead of just following your own ideas blindly to have other people commenting and uh uh this was a, a unique computer so really the 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 first customers were the people in the lab uh, that had come, written the software and 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 used the the hardware and and it was important because Steve didn't believe in focus groups at all. He thought they were kind of a waste of time to have outside people come in and comment on products. And uh, the the people in the lab were the customers. They really wanted the product. That's what motivated them sometimes to come in ten hours a day, twelve hours a day work on weekends to get it done was the fact that they really wanted it, not that some external client wanted it. So I, I think that was really critical to the, the way the whole division operated. Yeah, so the, they were basically, they were the end users as well. Right. And this, this was carried over. We weren't the only company thinking that. Uh, when I was working at Hewlett Packard in the microwave division, the managers said that, you know, you're designing electronic test equipment. We said yes, and he said, well, the guy on the next bench is your customer. You know, go talk to him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good philosophy. What's your fondest memories of being at Apple at that time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I, think, I think seeing, having a vision of something, giving, I, I like to think that a product designer is a, is a form giver, giver of, giver of form. In, in the way the case is designed and the hardware and the chamfers and visually and tactily uh, the form is used by the by by the the customer and to have an idea a sketch and to have the 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 resources to go ahead and execute that and have it made and then see it used well and people liking it that the sort of a deferred gratification once it came out, people said, oh, this is fantastic, we like it, as opposed to just, well, it's another thing, go into your next project, which is kind of the way it was at Hewlett-Packard. I designed some 13 instruments there, and I, I really probably would be hard-pressed to write down a list of all those instruments because the next one was pretty much like the one before it, maybe with some different, you know, graphics or something. But this was really unique, and... and uh, we were able to do a lot of contributions based on Jobs' uh, uh, Jobs valuing design highly and giving us resources uh, to go ahead. When when there were hiring freezes in the company, and I said I needed another draftsperson, he signed it off personally. Walked into his office, I said I need another draftsman. He said, Well, you know we have a hiring freeze, and I said Yes, but I really need them. He said Okay, and he'd sign it off. And when it came time for the tooling for the original Macintosh, over a million dollars, he trusted me to. I brought in the purchase order. He says, is this what we've been looking at for the, the last several weeks? Yes. Okay. He signed it. Uh, so to have, that was like 
I know now was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So it sounded as though he was somebody that he really, once he chose you to be in his inner fold, he really trusted you in terms of what needed to be done? Yeah, and if, he, if you performed, you were, you were on his good side. And, and uh, I always tell the story about, about working at my drafting board, and he would, when he was doing his walks around the company, he'd come up next to me and he'd look over my shoulder and said, what's this piece of crap? I, and I go, uh, uh, you know, and I'd mumble and stammer and try to think of something to say, and he'd get disgusted and he'd walk, just throw his hands up and walk away. Well, some people interpreted that as saying he doesn't like what I'm doing, and so then they'd try to find out what he did like, and then they'd change it, and those people ended up getting fired. I figured out that what he was really doing was saying, "Let's have a conversation," but he wasn't at that time of his life was too immature to to really manage that properly. So I would, then I'd say, okay, here's my, I've made a lot of, uh, of compromises here. I'm compromising this for that. And I'd put a list of pros and cons and I'd take my drawings and I'd go back to his office the next day and say, Steve, you know, when you came right the other day, I wasn't able to answer your questions, but now I've, I can show you why I've been doing this. And he'd say, oh, oh, okay, go ahead. And, I, and he was happy again. So somehow I figured out I don't know how, but I figured out that that's what he was really asking for was a, an interface. See through the stages of where he was at his life and see what he actually wanted. Yeah, and it wasn't conscious conscious at the time, but it, looking back on it, I'm sure that's the way it was because I, I never had any problems with, you know, he sometimes he'd say, do that again. I don't like that curve or I don't like that that form. Can you do better? And then you'd have to ask him, why don't you like it? And he would try to answer that, and then we'd do another iteration. That that happened all the time, but it wasn't this, you know, really, really uh, dislike or anything. It was it was establishing a conversation. He knew what he wanted. He had a clear vision, but he needed other people to communicate that vision. By the sounds of it, yeah, Very yeah. Or he might not have even had a clear vision. He might have wanted to see five different ways to do it, and then by the time he saw the five, then he could sort of have an idea that one of those was what he was originally thinking about, excuse me. So did you just know him for the period of time when you were in Apple, or did you know him in different phases of his life? Yeah, from the time I met him to do the Apple II uh, to the end of the Macintosh project, of course, I was working directly for him, mm. so seeing him on a daily basis. But we also had some, some dinners at our house with he and his uh, friend. Uh, so socially, we met him occasionally. Uh, the Apple had a Christmas party uh, in February one year at the St. Francis Hotel where he hired the whole San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. And the reason we couldn't have the Christmas party at Christmas was that they were already doing something. So we had it in February. And at that, at that uh, dinner, it was, it was uh, dancing, waltzing in between courses. And at that time, Steve was dating Joan Baez. So... Uh, you know, we we met Joan and Steve on the dance floor and e exchanged conversations. So it wasn't just strictly work. There were there were social times, but not too many. I don't think I was on his inner circle of, you know, best friends uh, like sort of Andy Hertzfeld and some of the other Rod Holt, other technical people there. But I was definitely in the second tier. And what are your memories of Walls? Uh, just as a brilliant designer who uh, got all kinds of compliments from people that 
from very traditional electronics engineers about uh, was being able to take an integrated circuit and do things with it that nobody believed could be done. Uh, so we always considered him just very brilliant and uh, not necessarily uh, uh, technically the, the, the critical part of the team, original team, technically, not necessarily having the vision to, uh, to market the product. I think Waz would have been very happy if the Apple II wouldn't have never sold because he, he had done his thing and was happy that he has accomplished something. So yeah, and, and, and the other thing I remember uh, is just his generosity with uh, his, his uh, concerts that he funded, his rock concerts that, that Wozniak financed basically and apparently was just being taken by the promoters uh, was wanted to see people uh, have a good time. When a new Star Wars movie would come out, you know, if it would come out on a, on a Friday, first showing Friday evening, Waz would rent the theater Friday morning and take busloads of people from Apple down to see the movie before the public introduction. He'd rent the whole theater and show the, and show the new Star Wars movie, not after the fact, but before anybody else saw it. So uh, incredibly generous and, uh, and, and very brilliant. So moving on from your time at Apple then, what did you do after that? What's your post-Apple design years? Uh, well, I had I'd always had my, my company, Manic Comprehensive Design, that I started before I worked for Apple. And that was doing small jobs, you know, in the, in the small amount of time that I had available outside of Apple. But then when we went back to Vermont, uh, when I left Apple and after the Mac came out in 84, uh, we decided we wanted to give our two daughters a kind of an East Coast educational experience. Because uh, one thing in California, you read about the Battle of Lexington and Concord in a textbook and it means a certain amount, but actually getting off the Tanner Gray Line bus and standing there and looking at the bridge, I just had chills up and down my spine the first time I saw it. So we thought, wow, this is, this is worth doing. So we rented our house in Palo Alto, rented a house in Burlington, Vermont, and said we'll give it one calendar year. And uh, about six or seven months into it, the quality of life was just so different uh, and, and more of a human scale than California. We just said we can't, there's no way we can go back. Uh, living right next to Lake Champlain with its, and, and the Green Mountains with their you know, recreational uh, opportunities were fantastic. Uh, the fact that you could, the mayor had open office hours on Friday afternoon. If you wanted to talk to him, you could. The governor of the state of Vermont at that time, uh, probably four times out of ten, answered his own telephone. So just that kind of real human scale was so different than my experience being a native Californian. And from my understanding, aren't you a part-time lecturer at a university in Vermont? Yeah, I, when we moved to Vermont... Uh, Again, you, you ask a question about the open atmosphere at, uh, at Apple in the Macintosh division. There's this concept about integrated product development that where you don't do things in a serial kind of way. You do kind of everything at once and communicate with everybody else in the marketing group and the production group and the, everyone is on the same page. Uh, we started formulating a course at UVM uh, and, and along with, at that time, seven other full-time professors would uh, have business school students and mechanical engineers 
come and participate in this in this basically discussion where uh, a presentation from a professor on the product design process, uh, product introduction process, would then be critiqued by some of the other professors, uh, and then it evolved into the into a a course where we tried to duplicate a startup company where a team of, of students, both marketing and engineers, would actually go out and work on a real product. And then uh, and the class was a staff meeting. It wasn't a class. It was a staff meeting where we discussed what was going on. They were taught to do material lists and, and taught about life cycle, uh, product life cycle design. Uh, and the final exam was a... a Presentation before to, before a theoretical board of directors, would turned out to be like forty five or fifty of our friends uh, would come in and and um, there would be a fifteen minute presentation by each group uh, that would try to convince the board to vote for their product, uh, vote the money and the resources to carry on with that product, and uh, students had to. Uh, had to prove that it worked, the idea worked, but also to financially justify it with with marketing concepts. So uh, at the end, after they've all done their presentations, the uh, there were three envelopes at the front, and each of the board of directors had uh, play money, and they got to invest all of their money in one idea or no ideas or mix it up between the three. And, uh, and then the students were required to come in all together and count the money in their envelopes and then write the amount on the blackboard so it was it was I mean as close absolutely as close to a startup company as I could make it and we had lawyers coming in talking about intellectual property and you know a lot of a lot of external speakers coming in filling the students in and yeah that lasted for 25 years wow that's fantastic and it's interesting as well because one thing I've certainly noticed about the tech scene is you can't really be an applied understanding of things. So to be able to go through that process of doing everything just seems like a real smart way of teaching somebody in a classroom environment of saying, well, this is the real world. Yeah, we've had any number of students after they graduated two or three years out to write back and say that they realized that that was the best class they ever had at the university because they could go into an engineering staff meeting and sit in the corner if they were a marketing person and raise their hand and ask about a human factors question or ask about a materials question. Not that they could solve it, but they knew about manufacturing processes and they knew about human factors because they'd done it themselves. Why are you using aluminum instead of stainless steel? You know, and are you going to mold that or are you going to cast it or, you know, because our volume is here and, you know, they're saying, the engineers are saying, well, you know, my God, that's, and then they got invited to more sessions because they were a contributing member of the team then. They weren't just somebody that was going to sell something after they'd started making them. So, yeah, it was very gratifying. One of the really interesting things about Jerry's interview was getting the sense of just how different Apple was back to when he was working for the company in the late 70s to early 80s to where it is now and just how important computers like the Apple II actually were. You know, obviously with the Mac, overall in the long run, history dictated where that one went but to speak to somebody that knew people like Jobs and Wozniak in their formative years in terms of business and technology 
it was just, it genuinely was very fascinating. Another thing I found very interesting as well was when the mics were off, we were just casually talking. Jerry was telling me a story about how when he was in an investors meeting, Steve Jobs was there and he was just waving his finger at him. And basically this, you know, this is a Steve Jobs we all know. Later on, after he came back to Apple, the room was full of people. And at the end of that meeting, Steve even said, well, I want you guys to know that there's a guy by the name of Jerry Manock who's in here who played an important role in the history of this company. And, you know, to be able to speak to somebody that had that close association with somebody that the historical figure and I guess the personal figure, they can be two different things. And yeah, it was very cool. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hello there, my name's Adam Spring, and I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener-supported, and I love to include you guys as, as much as I can. Anyway, the big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also, for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share, you can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play where you can check this podcast out. And there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle, which is at that interested. You can also follow and reach out to me there. And there's also the remotely interested email as well, which is contact at remotely-interested.com. Anyway, I love doing this for you. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for listening to the show. Four years ago, I was uh, right when Steve Jobs died. Our local newspaper, Seven Days, a weekly in Vermont, uh, interviewed me about what it was like to work with Steve. And based on that interview, uh, a fellow in Ireland had just received a 50,000 euro grant for, for a technical product that aids farmers in evaluating their what resources they have on their farm had just been received this grant and talked to his board and he said, well, what are we going to do with the money? Are we going to actually start a company or we have proof of concept? We have this rough thing that works. What are we going to do? And he was an, uses Macintosh. So when he got home, popped up on his, on his uh, news feed that there was an article about somebody that had worked for Steve Jobs at Apple. So he read the article and then he wrote me an email and said, you know, would you talk to us about, about how to start up a company and that, that has the, the values that Apple had? And I started asking him about the product and realized that all over the world, this, this product could help people grow more food, provide more income for the farmers. And I was able to then work with him and contribute to the modular design of it so that it could actually do much more than he thought it would do. And to make a long story short, we've been working together uh, on that product, and we've just gotten to the point where uh, we've manufactured 100 very close to production units that are out for final testing in Ireland. Product is called the grassometer. Uh, It measures more than just grass growth. It measures all kinds of parameters that a farmer might want to know about, uh, soil compactness, soil moisture, soil pH, nitrogen content, et cetera, et cetera. And all these, all these parameters are measured in real time going to the person's smartphone 
which sends it up to the cloud and then puts it into an analysis package that the farmer can look at and make their decisions once they get back to their to their farm on their mainframe computer. So we think it's going to be very uh, very beneficial. We have New Zealand investors. We have potential uh, distributors in South America, and of course Ireland to start with, and UK and Holland and Germany and France. So uh, that's been a real a great experience and. Uh, getting back into the original sort of startup mode again, bringing back memories of how hard it can be sometimes to, to start up a company and get all the, all the bases covered. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the future work on it.